so uh, I left with the Count Basie band, which I loved. I and mean, let me tell you, uh, that was another great day for me to be to be able to join a band like Count Basie because I was going to get a chance as a writer to sit where swing had really started. Mm -hmm. And remember that there was the original rhythm section, which they called the All-American All right. Rhythm Section. It was Walter Page, Joe Jones, Count, and Freddie Green. So I, for, my, for me, that was gonna be another education deal because I'm gonna sit here now as a writer. I can just observe really what's going on and what's going on with this swing. Welcome to episode 11 of Jazz Backstory. This is Monk Rowe, and our opening words came from the arranger, band leader, and trumpeter, Gerald Wilson. Some 50 years had passed between his gig with the Count Basie Band and this 1999 interview. But Gerald's delight in joining Basie was still evident, and he provided a perfect setup for our topic today. What's going on with this swing? Swing and swinging can be used as nouns, adjectives, and verbs. Grammar aside, it's a feeling and a key component of jazz since day one. Much like improvisation, swing is challenging to define. Even the highly respected Grove Dictionary of Jazz begins their entry with a disclaimer, stating, Swing, a quality attributed to a jazz performance. Although basic to the perception and performance of jazz, swing has resisted concise definition or description. End quote. With the help of our interviewees and some choice riffs, we may get closer to what's going on with this swing. But some mystery, happily, will remain. Let's roll back in time. Starting in mid-1930s and for some ten years, swing was the thing. Jazz-based music at its most popular level. It even earned a designation, the Swing Era. Big bands crisscrossed the nation, each band with its own fan club. The leaders became household names. Basie, Goodman, Ellington, Dorsey, Lunsford, and Hampton. If Jimmy Lunsford, the lead trumpet player, left for Count Basie's band, it made the front page of Downbeat magazine. This was popular music for young people, and it dominated the airwaves and record sales. Music scholars, dancers, and listening fans would agree that the swing feel, the groove, is mostly generated from its signature rhythm. The name Basie has already been mentioned three times in this episode, and during our 2003 interview, jazz historian Phil Schapp shed some light on why the Basie name is synonymous with swing. For you, what was it about the Basie sound that made it distinctive? Well, the, that it's an orchestra that is able to incorporate, without everyone being a genius, the rhythmic revolution of the 1930s. But I don't think I could have told you that in 1956. Mm -hmm. <laughs> okay. Uh, I mean, that, in other words, that the innovation, the suppleness of the beat, 
that is elasticizing and making more fluid the energy of swinging jazz rhythms. Mm -hmm. Is that the rhythmic revolution? That's what I'm calling of. the rhythmic revolution yeah. of the of the 30s. Is an innovation of genius. Roy Eldridge, Billy Holiday, Charlie Christian, Benny Carter, Benny Goodman, Teddy Wilson, Lester Young, if I haven't said him, of mm -hmm. course, and, and and a few others. But the transference of it to others and the coherence of it is an ensemble display where the parts are combinable and examinable separately. I, I hear that, that merger in the Basie band mm -hmm. first, other than an individual display. And Billie Holiday displayed it on her lonesome, but the Basie band displayed it as an aggregation. Mm -hmm. The suppleness of the beat that is elasticizing and making more fluid the energy of swinging jazz rhythm. Wow, Phil, that's pure poetry and deserves a musical follow-up. Let's call on our orchestra in a nutshell to play two contrasting riffs. Check it out. Most of us will feel the first one as swinging, jazzy, as if we're at a table in a formerly smoky nightclub. The second one, quite different, sounds like reggae or ska and conjures up rum and coke dancing on a beach. There's an underlying musical difference between these contrasting styles, a key ingredient in the 1930s rhythmic revolution. Saxophonist Jerry Dodgen in a rather off-the-cuff manner, highlighted this stylistic difference while speaking about studio work. And when I did stay in New York, the work that I started to do, uh, mainly through, uh, I knew Jerome Richardson from, from uh, San Francisco, and we had played together in J Gerald Wilson's band there. And so when I came to New York, he encouraged me to come and everything, and uh, he helped me a great deal. I mean, the first, my first recording date when I was here, he called me because he was contracting for Quincy Jones. So my very first rec record date was with uh, Quincy Jones and Dinah Washington. So it wow. was like, it was, you know, it was wow. wonderful. So somebody said, how do you like so New York so far? <laughs> first day, it was great. That's wonderful. wonderful. But that's, in those days, the pop music was still jazz-oriented, more so. You know, then, it, then later on, it, it became more rock and roll, uh, even eighth note uh, oriented. So I, it's, it, it changes. It's changing all the time. Can I just back up? You just said even note oriented. Is that even is eighth it? note? Yeah. Yes. See, I never heard anybody quite describe. We know that how swing eighth notes go and how rock and roll eighth notes go, but no one ever exactly said the music became even note oriented. That that's very interesting. Well, to me. if some drummers, if you talk to some drummers, they might tell you that. Yeah. You know, because that's the basic thing. It's a even eighth note as opposed to the the twelve eight. Uh, smooth mm -hmm. flowing, yeah. yeah. In addition to the fascinating anecdote about his entry into the New York studio scene, Jerry Dodgen identified a major difference between swing 
and almost every other style of music, including classical, rock, funk, and Latin styles. The swing eighth note versus the straight eighth note. With that in mind, here's a first for our Jazz Backstory podcast. A bit of music theory. Now don't tune out. It's not in my nature to get too technical. Let me move over to Studio B. Truth be told, moving to Studio B involves swiveling my chair to face the keyboard. Most music we hear and play is based on four. Four beats in a measure. One quarter of the measure is one beat, and it's designated as a quarter note. One, two, three, four. If we split the quarter note equally in two, each one gets a half a beat. Now we have eight notes per measure. Eight times a half equals four. Simple math. Typically, we vocalize eighth notes with the beat number followed by and. One and two and three and four and. There's a curious power in these eighth notes. For centuries, they have been played as they should be. Half of the beat, then the other. Both equal, as in uh, Hall of the Mountain King. One and two and three and four. One and two, three and four. The way they're written on the page, the look of them reinforces the equalness, if that's even a word. Musicians call them straight eighth notes, or even, as Jerry Dodgen did. Somewhere in the early 20th century, self-taught musicians, especially in the southern U.S., started playing the first eighth longer than the second but not a three-quarters plus one-quarter deal. That's a march, as in... Jerry described the swing long short as a 12-8 flowing feeling. Back to the math. Each quarter now gets three parts, a triplet on each beat. Triplet, triplet. Now connect the first two of each triplet, tie them together, snap on two and four, and it swings. Now we could switch the feels with the two musical examples, but it would sound sort of like a comedy skit, as in Hall of the Mountain Swing. Or, I'm in a straight mood. You get the idea. Jerry Dodgen made note of the move in 50s popular music from a jazz orientation to rock and roll. Swing eighths to straight eighths. Frank Sinatra to Chuck Berry. Swing players had to make the transition to the straight feel when required, And it was difficult for some, but rewarding from a gig standpoint. Guitarist Bucky Pizzarelli described the required switch in studio work by stating, We all had jazz people. The drummers were all from the big bands. Once they got that straight eighth note feel, they were in. End quote. The arrangers listened and heard it, tried to write those triplets as triplets, and finally figured out this is way too tedious. 
They just stuck with the eighth notes and wrote swing at the top of the paper if they wanted them swung. Swing and straight. Same language, different dialect. It's a fascinating, complicated part of American music history. It's also the end of the theory lesson. On occasion, a particular song and recording can be rejuvenated by changing that dialect. This change usually hinges on the drummer, and we'll turn to an anecdote from our 2003 interview with Bernard Purdy, perhaps the most recorded drummer in the history of popular music. So you're talking about transitioning the music really from a more of a swing thing into straight eighth notes. Yeah. That's, can you, this might be a hard question, but can you remember any particular sessions, particular songs where this kind of thing happened? Uh, sure. Um, Mickey and Sylvia. Oh, with um, Love is Strange? Love is Strange. Yeah. One of the, see, their first record, the first one that they did in the early 50s was mostly all swing, mm -hmm. but it was re-recorded in 60, 61. I re-recorded -re it and brought it with a different sound. Almost straight. If you hear the record that's being played all these years, in the last 40 years, it's been their, their record of the straight time. Uh -huh. Not the one that was the shuffle. Right. But more of the straight time. Strings and all. The sound that they had with her moaning and doing two or three different sounds, having the background singers just follow her and not do things on their own made all the difference in the world. Mm -hmm. And that's the one that's been played for over 40 years, that particular record. You may recall Nat Adderley and his childhood music memory from season one, episode two. I am a huge Nat and Cannonball fan, and some years ago I composed and recorded a tune modeled after Sakawo, an Adderley quintet recording that used both straight and swing grooves. The excerpt is called One for Nat, recorded here by the SUNY Fredonia Alumni Jazz Ensemble. You'll hear a groove triptych, starting with a funky straight, followed by swing, and back to the funk. Here's One for Nat. Adderley, that is. Thank you. 
If you were on the dance floor with this music, either your feet would adjust to the groove change, or you'd fall down, which is why we don't play this tune at dances. Of our 450 interviews, my session with Steve Allen was one of the most intense. He fits the definition of a polymath, and his slightly sarcastic sense of humor made for a challenging hour of conversation. He pointed out that swing is not about rhythm alone, but also has its own signature instrumental and vocal sound. Here's Mr. Allen from our 1999 interview. The last thing I want to do is wrap up here, but I'm going to let you know of the time. It's about 5 of 11. I don't, uh, know, I don't know where you have to be. That's um, okay. I can stay till about 8 after 11. 8 after. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> can you define for me when you hear something that's really swinging, why? Why does one thing swing and one thing and the next thing doesn't? The dominant factor is rhythm. I think most people would think of that if they've ever been born. Um, but that isn't all there is to it. There are certain ways of voicing instruments. If you're talking now, let's say, about a big band, 14, 15, 16 pieces, there are certain kinds of harmonies. Uh, sometimes, at least not, now it's so common we don't even notice it or comment on it, but sometime in the late 30s, you began to hear more chords, even if it's a simple chord, a C chord, let's say, where they added the sixth note of the scale instead of the, the tonic, the bum, 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 let's see, C, E, G, to those three notes, they added the A, which is the mm -hmm. sixth note in, in the group. And why that sounds hipper, or cooler, as they would say today, it, it's not easy to explain in purely scientific terms, but it, that's the way it is. Uh, that f had probably happened first, even before it happened in, with instruments. It happened with voices. We all remember the term barbershop quartet. Down by the old mill stream. That, that's nice stuff. But the harmonies are as simple as possible. Only the necessary notes are there. There's no enrichment or adornment. But then, about 1937-ish or so, a group called the Merry Max. If you can find any other old recordings, play them sometime with this comment. You'll see what I'm talking about. They were the first people to add the sixth and to add other harmonic enrichments where they got them, I don't know. You'd have to dig them out of the grave and ask them, I guess. But you can hear it in their uh, their old recordings. Then from the Mary Max, that opened uh, a window of opportunity. I'm very big with cliches today. And you had group like the Pied Pipers, uh, the Mellow Larks. Um, Mel Torme had a great group, uh, the, the Mel Tones, I think they were called. Um, in which the, the harmonies were more typical of what was also happening at that time in voicing the reed sections, the saxophone sections mm -hmm. of orchestras. Um, when they only had four notes, they could still put in the sixth and some enrichments, but when they added a fifth saxophone, which now all the big bands have had for years, somehow that enlarged the uh, harmonic possibilities, and we associated that kind of harmonic hipness with big band, with jazz, with swing. Parenthetically, isn't it marvelous that young people now love that music? 
Yeah. I sometimes feel like yeah. saying, hey, where were you a year ago? <laughs> I tried to tell you it was great. Yeah. But you had to work, uh, wait for some guy to have a hit record with it. Uh-huh. It's okay. You heard Steve say, young people now love that music. And I'm reminded that at the time of this interview, there was a swing music revival going on. Bands like the Squirrel Nut Zippers and Big Bad Voodoo Daddy were swinging like mad, making the charts and playing major venues with swing dancing in the aisles. It was pretty hip while it lasted. In this episode, I have repeatedly drawn a distinction between uneven and even eighth notes, swing and straight, jazz versus rock and funk. Drummer Ed Shaughnessy, most known for his years with the Tonight Show Orchestra, has a different take on swing, where and when it's happening, and when it's not. Here's a hard question for you. <laughs> Sometimes music's hard to put into words. What's the secret of life? <laughs> yeah, oh, that's easy compared to this. Yeah. <laughs> in, in the, in the, uh, I looked in the Webster Dictionary this morning. Yeah. Uh, under swing. Yeah. It says, jazz music, especially from 1935 to 45, characterized by strong driving rhythm and improvised counterpoint. Are you able, in talking to students or anybody, in fact, to put what swing is into words? I finally think I can do it. I, I struggled with it for a long time. Um, but I really think I can do it. Uh, the, the thing is, before I do it, I want to say to you how often swing is used as a noun representing the type of music, right? They'll say the swing bands of the 30s and 40s, right? Yeah. And they played swing, okay? We're going to deal with it as, uh, how, would you, I really, how would you describe it if I'm going to talk about swing as a feeling? Would we say mm -hmm. it's still a noun, but it's... I mean, if I say it swings... That's like an adjective, adjective. isn't it? Okay, yes. well, I just want to make this clear to anybody who watches this tape. Yeah. Because what I find the problem is sometimes is that youngsters, and even oldsters, they mix up the terms to swing and lock it in exclusively to jazz music. Now, I think bluegrass music swings like hell. It swings. Now, what is that swinging I'm talking about? Without drums, right? Mm -hmm. It's mm -hmm. infectious. The main thing I think that swing means, for me, is that it's an infectious beat that makes you want to move, whether it's to dance or to sit and tap your foot or to tap your hands, but it makes you want to move, in a sense, and in a response to it. It brings something out in you. It gets into you. You know, it, it maybe yeah. makes you happy, uh -huh. but mostly it makes you want to get with it. Infectious is the best word I can use. That's why I don't like the fact that someone who's very hard-headed about uh, anything other than jazz, like if I say to them sometimes, well, you know, some of James Brown's funk rhythms would swing you out into bad health. Well, I don't like rock and roll. I say, look, man. I said, if you can hear that and you can't move yourself, you are dead. They should embalm you, see? But that's a form of swing. Do you know mm -hmm. what I'm saying? Yeah. If you hear a bunch of Africans playing, and they're playing that 12 eighth stuff like the Watusi people do, and you know, even if you don't see them dancing, 
If you hear that, it's infectious. It gets you going too. So to me, any music like bluegrass or jazz or funk music or Watusi music, if it's infectious and communicates to you rhythmically mm -hmm. and gets a visceral thing going, that's what I think swing is about. And I don't think it's an exclusive property of jazz. Ah. I really don't. However, some people will play jazz and it doesn't swing. That's what the that's the part that I think people should understand. To be swinging is a certain feeling. You can have jazz people playing, but it ain't swinging too good. See? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think the the I'm not going to say the mistake, but I think the error sometimes is to to feel that if you're playing jazz, it's necessarily swinging. No, it's not necessarily swinging. You know, it, it's, it might be a little cerebral, a little abstract, and you don't feel very much of that visceral communication. It might be very good, might be very technical, but it isn't kind of getting to you. Mm -hmm. that's, the, that's the absence of swing. That doesn't mean other things can't be there. Improvisation can be there. Imagination can be there, yeah. you know, and feeling can be there. But it isn't, I've heard, for instance, a bass and a drummer, both of whom are very good and well-known, and they don't play good together. They're not compatible. It never settles into a good unified pulse. So it isn't swinging too good. Yeah. See? It's so curious the way... That's a good that, definition, that, it, don't you think? I, I like it. I love the I'm word I'm not saying infectious. it goes mine, but I mean, infectious is really what swing is yeah. about. Hey, yes. You know? When I see audience and I'm playing and I see some of that, it doesn't have to be everybody. Right. If I see just a smattering of that, I think we're getting it across. Yeah. And if I see nobody moving, I don't think we're getting it across. Right. As an acknowledgement to Ed's words of wisdom, let's see if our house band has any James Brown-inspired funk. Anybody moving out there? I think Ed Shaughnessy is on to something. It's certainly infectious. Music teachers quickly discover the need to vocalize rhythms and grooves for their students. Near the end of my time in high school, I had the good fortune to play in an all-county jazz band led by the soon-to-be-famous Chuck Manjone. He provided my first experience with a conductor that effectively vocalized swing and funk the two differing dialects. In my memory, I can still hear him. Even his count-off was distinctive. Sort of like, I want two, I want two, three, and two. He had that swing eighth notes thing. And then the funk, I want two, three, four, boom, 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 you get the idea. I don't know if they teach this in music school these days, but they certainly should. So I hope we have shed some light on this swing thing, such a key ingredient in the jazz story. Now this is a generalization, but historically, jazz from its early 20th century beginnings to 1950 or so was swing-based. Thereafter, the performers and composers became influenced by even-note music, Latin, rock and roll, R&B, and funk. 
If I could gather our podcast subscribers together in a classroom, they would hear two recordings to help make this clear. For the swing, the Count Basie Orchestra playing Frank Foster's masterpiece, Shiny Stockings. And for the opposite side of swing, Birdland by Weather Report. They are both iconic in their own way, and as Ed Shaughnessy stated, they are both snappable, clappable, and foot-paddable. In other words, infectious. Jazz Backstory is available at hamilton.edu and from your favorite podcast provider. You can view the full video interviews with the musicians in this episode and 400-plus more on the Phileas Jazz YouTube channel. My thanks to Jason Lever for assembling these multiple excerpts into a coherent podcast, to Doug Higgins, our digital scholarship technologist at Hamilton College, to Romy Bertel for interview transcriptions and content consultation, and of course to Milt Phileas Jr., Hamilton Class of 44, for his vision and passion that led to this jazz oral history project. Our next two episodes focus on going where the gigs are, jazz life on the road. See you on the flip side. <laughs>